Well, thanks again for joining us online. Uh, really excited about the message that I get to share with you this day. Uh, I don't know about you, but over the last few weeks, as this coronavirus crisis thing has drug on, it, I found it harder and harder for me to find a sense of purpose in every single day. I don't know if you feel that way too, but you know, I get up every day, I do as much work as I can, connect with people as much as I can, but at the end of the day, a lot of times I've kind of asked the question, am I even doing anything? Is what I'm doing uh, making a difference? You know, you can only watch Tiger King so many times, right? And then you feel like, what am I doing? Is this making an impact? I just want to share with you, studying this passage of scripture that we're going to look at today and preparing this message actually has helped me with that. And so it's been my prayer going into today that this message is going to actually help you find a sense of purpose right now in your life where you're at. I know it did that for me as I've studied this passage. And so I'll set it up this way. Uh, this past summer, my wife's family had a very large family reunion that we all got together in Tennessee for a week to celebrate. My wife is the oldest of seven kids, and so there was like 30-some people that came from all over the country, and we stayed in this one place for a week and had a big family reunion. Uh, my brother and sister-in-law, who live in California, packed their kids up in the car and drove all the way across the country to be a part of this, but they left their two precious dogs at home. They love these dogs. And so what they did to take care of the dogs while they were gone is they asked this young woman to come over and be a dog sitter, to actually stay at their house and to take care of their two dogs while they were gone. And so we were there at this family reunion and we were a few days in and my brother and sister-in-law said, hey, we should check on the dogs. We should go and, and look at the Nest cameras and, and see how the dogs are doing. I don't know if you're, you know about this, but you can get these Nest cameras and then you can go on your phone and you can actually go online and see you know, what's happening with those cameras. And so they go online, they look at their phones and they check the Nest cameras of their house to check on the dogs and what they saw shocked them they actually had recorded evidence that the woman that they had invited to come and stay at their house and be the dog sitter had been inviting groups of people over and, and like multiple different groups of people and they were drinking and partying. They were spending lots of time in the hot tub. And I mean, there was all kinds of things they were doing, but the one thing that they were not doing was taking care of the dogs. So that was the whole reason that she was hired was to watch the dogs. And that was the thing she, they were completely neglecting the dogs. And so it was kind of comical, but right there from our vacation spot in Tennessee, they had to actually get on the phone and call up this young woman and have kind of like an impromptu job performance review with her about the job she had been doing watching their dogs. And here's why I tell you that we are today in Mark chapter 12. We're in the last week of Jesus' life. He's in Jerusalem. He's at the temple and he is having his final set of confrontations with the Jewish religious leaders of his day. Now, the religious leaders of, G of Jesus' day were kind of like the dog sitter. The temple, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, it all was entrusted to them and they were stewarding it uh, to help people find Jesus. All of it pointed to a Messiah who was going to come and fulfill it all. And so they were just entrusted with this entire religious system just for the period of time 
so that when Jesus came to fulfill it all, people were ready. And so Jesus begins this parable we're going to look at together. It's called the parable of the vineyard. And he's telling it to a, to a large group of people there in the temple, but it reads kind of like an impromptu job performance review for the religious leaders. So join me uh, together. We're in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It begins this way. Then Jesus began teaching them with stories. A man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. The owner then sent another servant, but they insulted him and beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed. Others he sent were either beaten or killed until there was only one left, his son, whom he loved dearly. The owner, the owner finally sent him, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But the tenant farmers said to one another, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him and murdered him and threw his body out of the vineyard. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do, Jesus asked. I'll tell you. He will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. The religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Okay, so that's the story that Jesus tells in the temple as kind of a job performance review against the religious leaders of his day. So let's take a minute and look at that story together. Basically, in the story Jesus tells, there's an owner of a vineyard who is not going to be there during the time of the grape harvest. And so what he does is he hires these tenant farmers to bring in the harvest uh, without him there. Now, this, this was a very common thing in Jesus' day. It was an agricultural society, and the people would have been very familiar with this scenario. It would not have been uncommon for a vineyard owner to lease out his vineyard to, so that these farmers would actually farm it and then bring in the harvest. And one source says that a vineyard owner could expect to get about half of the grapes as his payment during this time. But what Jesus is doing here, if we go another layer deeper, is actually very, very clever. Jesus' listeners would have actually already known this story a little bit. What Jesus is actually doing is he's retelling a very familiar story that the Jewish people would have known by heart. Only what Jesus is doing is he's adding his own twist. He's changing the details a little bit. What Jesus is doing is he's retelling what's known as the Song of the Vineyard from Isaiah chapter 5. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament in chapter 5 tells uh, a story about a vineyard owner. And this is the story everyone would have been familiar with. And in Isaiah's version, God is the vineyard owner and God plants Israel as his vineyard. And God watches over it. He, he cares for it. He cultivates this vineyard. And he's expecting to get good grapes. But, but instead, all he gets is bad grapes. And so what God does in the story is he rejects Israel as the vineyard and he abandons it to weather and wild animals to just take it over. 
It's actually a very sad picture of rejection and judgment that happens when people persist in rejecting God. When people say, it's good, I, I'm good, I don't need you in my life. And so this is the story that Jesus is retelling. Only what Jesus does, he begins to tell it. And Jesus' story, some of the details are the same. God is the vineyard owner. Israel is the vineyard. But then in Jesus' version, there are these tenant farmers. And these tenant farmers represent the religious leaders, the ones who are in charge of the, the temple and the sacrificial system and the priesthood. And these religious leaders get opportunity after opportunity to listen as messengers are sent to them. They get so many chances to change their ways and to humble themselves, but they don't. And then even when the son comes of the vineyard owner, and the son in Jesus' story represents himself, he was the son of God, even then they don't listen, they don't change their ways, and they don't repent. And so uh, some people have asked the question, why would Mark want to include this story that Jesus tells in his gospel? I mean, it's a pretty intense story. And it, it, you may not be aware, there are four gospel accounts in the New Testament of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And each gospel writer includes different details. And so people have asked the question, why did Mark choose to include this story? Here, here's what many people believe. Mark would have been writing his gospel in around 70 AD. Now, what happened in 70 AD is the Romans came in and they sacked Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. They literally destroyed the temple of God. There wasn't a stone left standing on top of another one. And so Mark's readers would have been asking the question, why did God do that? Why did God allow our temple to be destroyed and, and to be taken down? And so this, this parable that Jesus tells would have been an answer to them as to why. They would have said, oh, Jesus predicted this, that basically they had every opportunity to listen and to turn from their ways, but they didn't. And so therefore, eventually, that's why the temple was destroyed and taken down. So that's the parable of the vineyard. That's the story that Jesus tells. Uh, now, as we try to turn this toward ourselves a little bit and try to see ourselves in this parable uh, and in this moment where Jesus is talking in the temple, it's great to be able to ask the question, you know, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe you're sitting there going, okay, this is great that Jesus said this about these religious leaders of the day, but hey, I'm not a Jewish priest, you know, working at the temple in Jerusalem in the first century. So what does this have to do with me? So here's the transferable principle that I think applies to every single one of us when we read this parable. And all throughout the centuries, even in today, the transferable principle is this idea that my life is a stewardship. All of life is a stewardship. It's all on loan. We're not owners. We are stewards. As you think about your money, your time, uh, your business, um, your kids, if you're a parent, none of it is owned by us. Your gifts, your talents, your abilities, all of life is a stewardship. We've been entrusted with everything that we have in life. And there will come a day where we will give it all back. Life is a stewardship. And maybe you've never thought of your life that way. Maybe you've never thought about your, your world and your place in this world in that way. 
I, I would love to just take a minute, maybe just turn to some of the other people you're watching this live stream with. I'd love for you to just answer the question over the next 30 seconds. What have I been entrusted with for the kingdom? Answer that question. What have you been entrusted with for the kingdom? Now, uh, if you're watching by yourself, you can talk out loud to yourself and answer that, or you can answer in the comments and let us know what you're thinking. But just take 30 seconds and answer that question. All right. Well, as you're trying to answer that question, what has God entrusted me with to steward? Um, a great way to kind of figure out how am I doing with that? How's that going for me is just to think about what helps me is to think about what do I want people to say at my funeral? Someday when you die, what do you want people to actually say at your funeral? I, I'm a pastor. I have officiated a ton of funerals. I don't know how many funerals. I, I, I've lost track of how many funerals I've been present at and officiating. So let me tell you what people never say at funerals. Okay, and no funeral that I have ever been to does someone say, wow, it's so great that she really worked hard on that diet and exercise program. At least she was 20 pounds lighter when she went to heaven, right? Look how fit she looks laying there in the coffin. <laughs> Nobody has ever said that at any funeral I've ever been to. I've never heard anybody talk about someone's grades at a funeral. Like, oh, you should just see his last semester report card. In fact, here, I'm just going to pass around his, his report card for that last semester. Isn't it incredible the grades that he got? Nobody says that at a funeral. Nobody talks about, oh, if you could have just seen his last quarter earnings. Let me pass around his investment portfolio. Take a look. Wasn't he rich? That's not what people say. No one says that at a funeral. You know what people talk about at funerals? Every funeral I've been to, what people talk about at funerals is the impact you had on their life. At, at a funeral, people talk about how you made them feel. They talk about what it felt like to be around them, who you were as a person, and the impact that you had on their life. That's what people talk about. Listen to me. Only what's done for Christ will last. That was the problem for the, the wicked farmers in the story that, that Jesus tells. They thought the temple was theirs. They thought it was actually about them, that it was there for them. They were supposed to be stewarding it. They were entrusted with it, and they were supposed to be getting people ready for Jesus to come, the Messiah who would fulfill everything, the law, the Old Testament, the temple, the, the sacrificial system. They were supposed to be getting people ready for him, but instead they were just asking, what, what can I get out of this? What can this system do for me? And so John the Baptist has to come along and prepare the way for Jesus because they didn't do anything to help with that. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what, what we do for Jesus is, is going to count in all of eternity. As we think about what we've been entrusted with, that's the question we've got to you know, center our lives around. Uh, there's a guy in our church who owns a really great old 84 Corvette. And he's had it for years and years. And I've known him and his family for years and years and every year uh, he puts it away for the winter. But uh, for the last few years, in the month of October, he's been allowing me to drive his 84 Corvette for the month of October before he puts it away for the winter. And um, I, I'll never forget the first year he asked me, it was like the beginning of October, and he said, hey, Brian, do you, you want to drive my car for the next month? And I answered, I said, you know what? I'm going to have to pray about that. Uh, I'll get back to you if the Lord so leadeth me to do that. 
<laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. I was like, yes, I'll do it. G you know, give me the keys. I'll take it right now. And so for the month of October, I, for the last few years, I've gotten to drive this, this 84 convertible Corvette. By the way, pastors do not normally get to drive cars like that, in case you're wondering. Here's, here's the deal. I actually drive that car and treat it better than I treat my own car. When there's a pothole in the road, I slow down and I go around it like a granny. I'm so careful with that car. I'll take back roads to get wherever I need to go. You know, when the weather's bad and it's raining that day, I won't even drive it on those kind of days. And the whole reason is because I know at the end of October, I want to hand those keys back to him and I want that car to be in perfect condition because I know the owner. I care about him. I have a relationship with him. And so I want to make sure I, I treat that car well. Now contrast that with how we tend to treat rental cars, <laughs> right? We, we've all done it. We, we get a rental car and we just drive it hard. We don't care about, you know, if we, if we go through a pothole or if it gets a little bit banged up, we, we just drive it like it's not ours, right? And we don't really care. And the reason for that is because I don't have a personal relationship with Avis or budget or enterprise, right? I don't personally know them and, ha and care about them. The, the point is, how we treat what we've been entrusted with represents how we feel about the owner. It represents how we feel about the one who owns it all. When you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, what happens is it changes the way you think about your life. And you don't think of your life as being, this is my life, it's mine. You think of your life as Jesus is the one who owns it. I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. It's Jesus Christ who lives in me. It's actually his life that's being lived through me. And so what happens is our daily life, the way we live, what we're doing, we see it as a stewardship. I've been entrusted with it for this period of time and only what's done for Christ will last. We care about how we live because we care about the one who, whom our life belongs to. And so the question I, I'd love to ask you, maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, oh, I feel terrible. Maybe I, This sermon isn't intended, by the way, to, to beat anyone up or, or to make anyone feel bad. If you're sitting there going, oh man, honestly, I, I haven't really been, I can't really say I've been living my life for Christ. I can't really say that, you know, I've done a great job stewarding what God's entrusted me with. I just wanna ask the question, how does God treat us when we are living for ourselves? What does God do? How does he respond when we're not living, you know, with what he's entrusted with for his kingdom? Does he come with judgment? Does he just reject us? Does he abandon us? Does he just leave us to, our, to ourself? According to Jesus, no, he doesn't do any of those things. In Jesus' parable, according to Jesus, what God does in those moments is in his grace and in his mercy, he sends us messengers, divine wake-up calls that are meant to be reminders that we are not the owners in the story. We are stewards. All of our life is on loan. That's what happens in the story, right? Jesus talks about how messenger after messenger is sent by the owner to the tenant farmers. And one by one, they beat them up and kick them out and throw them out. Jesus was actually talking about the prophets from the Old Testament there. That's what he was referring to. If you read the Old Testament of the Bible, it's filled with prophets. 
Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, the minor prophets, Amos, Obadiah, Habakkuk, all these, all these names, those were prophets that were sent with a message. And it was a, a divine wake-up call that was sent to the religious leaders to say, hey, wake up. You're not the owner. Remember, you're a steward. What are you doing with what you've been entrusted with? And then finally, Jesus himself came as the fulfillment of it all. But even then, the religious leaders didn't listen and they didn't, they didn't turn their hearts toward him and they rejected him. What God does in our lives, if you're still breathing, if you're still alive, what he does is in his grace and his mercy, he doesn't leave us alone. Even when we've lived a life rejecting him, he continues to pursue us and he sends messengers. He sends these divine wake-up calls. So I want to ask you, is God sending you any wake-up calls right now? Is he sending you any messengers? Have there been any events in your life that have been, maybe you weren't even aware of it, but it was actually, if you, if you think about it, it was God trying to get your attention and wake you up. Oftentimes these divine messengers, by the way, are uncomfortable. They're not, you know, happy things in our lives. Oftentimes they're, they come in the form of suffering. Uh, suffering, by the way, is any situation in my life that, where I don't have control. That's suffering. Suffering is any circumstance I find myself in where I'm not in control. And oftentimes it's those kind of circumstances that actually are, I don't think God causes these, these evil or bad things to happen to us, but he certainly uses them. They, they serve in our lives as divine messengers, wake up calls for us to turn our lives completely over to him and live our lives for the kingdom. Um, this weekend is the five-year anniversary of a divine messenger that came into my life. In April of 2015, I was entrusted with a cancer diagnosis. Let me say that again. I was entrusted with a cancer diagnosis. Not given, not afflicted with. I was entrusted with a cancer diagnosis because it's all on loan. And that event in my life, you know, it, it could have caused me to doubt God. It could have caused me to question him. It could have caused me to get really angry. And in fact, there was a period of time there after that diagnosis where that's exactly what happened, where I, I did question God. I questioned his goodness. And, and I, I remember saying things like, God, how could you do this to me? I mean, here I am. I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to live for you. How could you allow this to happen to me, this cancer diagnosis? And Instead, what happened is over a period of time, it actually served as kind of a, a divine wake-up call, a messenger where it actually elevated my faith and actually raised the urgency for me on living my life for Christ because only what's done for Christ is going to last. Only what's done for Jesus will matter. And so what happens even now, five years later, is every six months, I'm in remission. Every six months, I go in for this full-body CAT scan and blood work to determine whether I'm still in remission or not. And so what happens is I, you know, th this, the six month moment will come and the moment comes on the calendar and the little reminder comes across. And to me, what it feels like is it feels like this divine messenger. It's like a little knock on the door of my life. Brian, Brian, don't forget. It's all on loan. You don't own any of it. Right now, I am driving a Corvette, my friends. 
and it's a beautiful sunny day and the convertible top is down and the wind is blowing. But every six months I get this reminder that there is a day that is coming. There is a final reckoning where I will hand the keys back over to the master and I will give it all back. And that moment in my life is either going to be a moment of joy and celebration or it's going to be a moment of regret and sadness. And the difference maker in that is how I'm living right now. Take a breath. If you're still alive, he's not done with you yet. And it may be that he's sending you divine messengers, wake up calls even right now in his love and his grace and his mercy to you. So, you know, obviously I'm, I'm giving this message right now in the midst of this coronavirus crisis where everything's been shut down. And so we're, we're living in the midst of this time. And here's what I would say to you. I, the more I've processed and thought about this time we're living in, I really truly believe we have been entrusted with a coronavirus crisis. Not given, not inflict, afflicted with, we have been entrusted with this coronavirus crisis. I don't think God caused it. I don't think he causes these kinds of things to happen, but I wanna give you the lens to look through this. As of the, the moment of this recording right now, uh, I just looked a little bit ago, as of right now, 45,000 people have died in our country from this virus. Probably by the time you watch this, it's probably even more. And as tragic as that is, and as, as much as that has plunged me into grieving, uh, there, there are some people in our church who have lost a close relative or a loved one to this d disease. And I can only imagine what's going to happen in the next you know, few weeks and months to come. Even in the midst of that, I, I, the grieving of that, I don't want you to miss this because I think what's going to happen is I think we're going to look back on this time that we're living in right now and we're going to realize that while this was painful and this was difficult and even though God didn't cause it, this was a divine messenger. This was a wake-up call. To, and it should be a wake-up call to every single one of us. And, and the question is, have you come to know Christ as your personal Savior? Uh, how you are living your life says a lot about how you feel about the one who owns it all. Have you entrusted your life to Christ? Or are you rejecting him like the bad farmers in Jesus' parable that he told? If you haven't done that, the process is simple. What you have to do is you have to recognize who Jesus is, that he came as a savior, and the reason is because we needed to be saved. And it's to recognize that we are sinners and we need to be saved. And then it's to confess Jesus as the Lord of our lives and accept him as the only one who can save us. And actually, at a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer. And I'm just going to invite you, if you've never done that before, to, to just pray with me and make that decision and to say yes and listen to this divine messenger. Let this message even today be a divine messenger to you to respond um, but if you're a believer already, if you already know Jesus as your Savior, uh, then maybe this divine messenger today is, is just to ask you, what are you doing with Jesus? What are you doing with what you've been entrusted with? Only what's done for Christ will last. And everything that we have, all of life is a stewardship. We're not the owners. 
We're simply the ones who have been entrusted. If you're basically living life for yourself, kind of like the bad farmers in Jesus' story, then what I would invite you to do is humble yourself and repent and actually ask God to show you what he's entrusted you with. Maybe earlier on, you didn't even know how to answer that question we, we paused and asked. Uh, I'm here to tell you, if you ask Jesus, show me what you've entrusted me with for this season to be stewarded for you, for your kingdom, I promise you, he will show you. He'll reveal that to you. And if you, if you just say, God, show me how you want to use me. How, show me how you want to use what you've entrusted me with for your kingdom. He will show you how to do that. And, and right now, I know tons of people are asking that question in the church. And God is allowing the church to shine brighter and brighter. The message of the gospel is shining brighter and brighter, even in the midst of this very dark, difficult time. So I want to invite you to do that. I'm going to actually close this sermon the same way that Jesus closes the parable. I just think that's fitting. So Jesus ends this whole parable about the, the bad farmers, the parable of the vineyard. He ends it by quoting Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 talks about how the stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. And Jesus basically says, hey, that verse was a prophecy about me. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who, who's come to fulfill that. Again, this, uh, Mark's readers would have been reading this after the temple was destroyed. And Jesus is saying the stone, the one that was rejected, as Jesus was rejected, has become the cornerstone of a new temple, a new and living temple. So what that means is that we don't build our lives on our money. We don't build our lives on our ability, on our business, on our talent. We don't build our lives even on our own physical health. We build our lives on the foundation, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. So would you just pray with me? I want to invite you to pray with me and actually just do that. Just make Jesus the foundation that you're building your life on. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we come before you right now and we just recognize who you are. You are the stone that was rejected so that you could become the cornerstone of a new and living temple. And so we recognize that you are a savior. You are the one who came to save. And, and we just confess as sinners, uh, Jesus, that we need to be saved. So God, we confess you right now as Lord of our lives. We ask you to come in, cleanse us, give us a new life in you. Through your death and through your resurrection, would you give us a new life in you? And would you show us how to live by faith and to steward what our lives that you've entrusted us with? Every breath that we take, everything that we have, God, would you show us how to live for you? And I pray that that day for each and every one of us, that whatever, whenever that moment is going to come for each of us watching this, when we have to hand the keys back over of our lives, I pray that that day would be a day of rejoicing and celebration and gratitude for all that you did and allowed us to do in our lives. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. In a moment, we're going to sing, but I just want to invite you, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, if this is new to you and you just took the step to say, yes, I'm going to turn my life over to Jesus. I'm going to build my life on the foundation of the cornerstone of Jesus. I want to invite you to, to respond and to let us know. Um, so you can do that by texting JesusFL to 31996. And I would love to connect with you. And I mean me personally. I, I would love to just connect with you if you made that decision and help you take some next steps to understand what it means to follow Jesus. If you're watching this from our website, you can actually just click the raise hand icon that's there. 
and it'll give you a couple of options, but you can let us know that you made that decision. We want to celebrate that with you because we believe all of heaven celebrates that even during this very difficult time, that that's the most important thing. Only what's done for Christ will last. And I would personally love to connect with you to take some next steps.